Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at BYU's International Cinema. My name is Marilan Oskerson, Assistant Director of International Cinema, and I'm joined today by Professor Rob Markvarland from the German and Russian Department. Rob's research areas include cultural studies, feminism, film, modernism, women's studies, and this is, this is a very partial list. It goes on and on. Rob is interested in so many things and a real wonder. Or I just have no capacity to concentrate on one thing. That's another interpretation that's less charitable. How about that? Oh, I, I think we need to cut this off. <laughs> well, welcome, Rob. We're so happy to have you here. This week, we're talking about Undine mm -hmm. and German filmmaker Christian Petzold. He's been featured at IC in the past few years. What are your five top films from this filmmaker? Christian Petzold and his films. Let's see, the number one, absolutely, I have to, and this is a, a fight. I think Phoenix. I really think that Phoenix is number one. It is a beautifully devastating story. Mm -hmm. Nina Haas plays it off. And if you haven't seen it, the surprise ending, the last... 20 seconds of that film will floor you. But I really, really love the way also it deals with, like today's film, about architecture in yeah. a lot of ways. And the, the destroyed architecture, the destroyed life as this woman is trying to pass as herself and act as herself. And then the question is, does her husband know or doesn't he know? Or how will he? Anyway, there's that one. I think indefinite second place is Barbara. Barbara is an East German film. Really, it's a lot better than The Lives of Others is an East German film, although it's it's a harder film to teach. So anyway, but it's it's a fantastic film about East Germany, also with the amazing Nina Haas in it. Number three, I would say is Transit, because Transit is the beautiful and the same pairing as we have in Undine with Frank Rogowski and Paula Bea. And it is a reimagining of a film written in exile in France, in Marseille in the 1940s, people who are running away from the Hitler regime. And it's a beautiful thing. Numbers four and five, I think I'm going to go with Undina for number four, the one that we're talking about today. And for number five, I would say Yella. Right. Okay. So I agree with you. And uh, Barbara Phoenix and Transit actually belong to a trilogy. They're beautiful. They're very impactful. So these films, actually, all the films that you mentioned have played at IC. And I wanted to ask you how Undine fits into Petzold's work. As I, as I remember my watching of those films, I, I can tell there's like strong characters that are women. Place is important. You mentioned the place in ruins in Phoenix, non-place in transit, a surreal space in Yella, wartime in Barbara, Phoenix and Transit. How does this new film fit into? To think about auteur films, we call a film an auteur film when it has a strong direction. One person has a very clear artistic view. If we think of Wes Anderson and his films, you can easily pick them out of other films. And I think Christian Petzold is one of the greatest auteurs working right now in German film, at least. And the fact that he uses this cast over and over again, comes back and treats these, these different ways of looking so much, you know, he's, he's a part of the, what were they, it's called the new Berlin cinema, the Berlin school of cinema. And yet he's not in a lot of ways. The Berlin school of cinema has very, very pared down. Sometimes it's almost like a surveillance camera, not lots of swelling music in the background. Uh, of course, this is a different film. This is very melodramatic. This has supernatural elements, which do not show up really uh, in this kind of pared down, very, very sedate, 
spare Berlin School of Film. And yet, in a lot of ways, it is because it's all about the relationship between these two people. There's not a lot of Baroque stuff going between except the, the intense feeling that they have for each other. Can you give us some examples of those pared down Berlin school films that our listeners might be familiar with? That our listeners might be familiar with. Jericho is a perfect example of that. There's a whole series of films made by Christian Petzold and, and uh, some of his some of his colleagues belong to films like that. So I'd suggest look them up, but they're hard to watch. Okay. They're very spare, very little use of outside music. And the human relationships in them are always just a disaster. Hmm. They are people who do not get along in life, don't understand things. Thomas Arslan is one of them who does that. It's not everybody's taste, but it's it's a direction in film. What I appreciate about Christian Petzold is he can, in Germany, they, they criticize what's called the cinema of consensus. The thing that every film does. You're going to have this in a film. It's going to move from that to that. Guy meets girl. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. And it's going to go over. There's going to be swelling violin music when you're supposed to feel something. They call that the cinema of consensus. And the Berlin School is set up against that. And in a lot of ways, so is Christian Petzold's films. But on the other hand, they are compelling, moving, entertaining, very, very engrossing in, in ways that actually they're, they're still accessible to a normal studio audience, right? That you would imagine would go and see a TV show or a film. And very much thought-provoking. Yes. When you talk about this revolution against the cinema of consensus, I have to go back to when the two characters in mm -hmm. the film, Undine and Christoph, meet in the cafe. Mm -hmm. And that's very unusual because they bump into a aquarium mm -hmm. and the water is splashing. The camera stops on this little figure in the aquarium that's a deep water diver. And Christoph, that's his job as well. Mm -hmm. That's unusual that the way they met and this bumping into the aquarium, breaking it, all this, all of a sudden the water is splashing. There is like such a chemistry between the two characters right off. They're laying down on the on the floor. And there's something that happens that's magical. Anyway, so I it wanted to point the, out to that scene because very unusual way to meet. That is someone. It, it, this is a nice thing to think about. It's. It is a, a really romantic, beautiful moment, right? Where they share this thing and they're thrown out of the, the cafe because somebody thinks that yeah. they've broken and messed with the uh, the tank because yeah. there's no explanation. Yeah. It's supernatural, exactly. the reason it happens. And this supernatural kind of love, I mean, it's the same as Moana, right? The water has a, a mind of its yes. own and it recognizes its own, the sea creature who's Undina and is trying to reach her, right? And so there's this beautiful scene of this tank shattering and knocking both of them over in this wave of water that hits them. And yet it's not the kind of picture that your image that you're going to see in a lot of American films, right? This is something that it doesn't have a, a really clear symbolism. And, and in here, it's frustrating because there's never a backstory. What's missing is that story where we see where Undine came from and, the and, and something that explains the history of the mermaid yeah. and you know this, this crystal that she came from that she has to return that gives it this kind of mythological thing. That's all kept from us. Yes, It's only hinted at. Mm -hmm. And I've always wondered what it would be like to watch this film and not understand the fact that the character is based upon a supernatural myth. Absolutely. Not to know the background. That would be very confusing. So can you add to that richness of our understanding and, and put it back into its context of the myth? Yes. Undina is a, a story, a folk tale about a mermaid. And this mermaid is destined to fall in love over and over again with men 
who come along and she can look like a human and she, but she can live under the water. It's not like Daryl Hannah and splash where she suddenly develops the tail or whatever. She's a kind of an amphibian creature who lives below the water, but comes up on earth and is drawn up onto earth by her love for people. And she will fall in love. And she is absolutely true. She will never cheat on anyone. She will be the best lover. She is made for that. That is her, her heart is ready to give away. And yet over and over again, men, human men disappoint her. And when they dump her, it is her lot in life. It is her destiny to kill them. She has to kill them after they fall in love with her and fall out of love and treat her wrong. And so she is a, a scourge to men who cannot be true to a woman. And so it's a, it's a fascinating topic. And it has come up over and over again in the history of German arts and letters. E.T.A. Hoffman, who we know from The Nutcracker and from The Sandman and all of those really, really creepy tales that he wrote, he was also a musician. And his great opera that he wrote was Undina. Mm -hmm. He wrote an operatic version of it, which I would love to see us perform sometime. It's an Mm -hmm. interesting, it's not necessarily in the canon of performed operas, but he was an accomplished musician. And I think it's, it's rather interesting. The most interesting treatment of the Undina myth, however, has got to be Ingeborg Bachmann, who is part of what they call the group in 1947, which is a this 47 group meets after the war and comes together. These are young, thoughtful artists who are against everything that Nazism stood for. They are for freedom and freedom of expression and tolerance of other people. And they're very, very unhappy with the way things are running in the post-war world where people are not talking about the recent past. They're going back to Germany's old glory days and they're looking forward to the great future, but they're skipping their responsibility for the things that happened in the war between 1933 and 1945. And so this young upstart group of writers, including Gunther Grass, who is a Nobel Prize winner, they are trying to hold Germany to take responsibility for its past. And she writes a story called Undine Geht, Undine Leaves. And it is the story of this sea creature. And she's talking about how she has tried again and again to love and has given pure love and again and again been met with the scorn of men who don't seem to appreciate the love that she gives them or understand the love and turn rotten every single time. And she says, even the kindest, the best people, when they become lovers, somehow they become evil and brutal and and ugly and and she doesn't want to have to kill them, but she does over and over. I once saw this Undina Gate performed in a train. It was a performance scheduled by the city of Vienna on all these back tracks. And we went throughout the city of Vienna on these little hidden tracks. And remember, we pulled out into one station. And there was a huge fish tank with a woman swimming in it. It was fascinating to hear the stories. They read through it and to go through the city of Vienna and think about this story of this water creature who comes out and doesn't understand why humanity is so flawed and so ugly. Okay, so you, you made this transition for me because you, you talked about the city and this this nymph and the production that you saw in, in, in Vienna. Because the story here takes place in Berlin and Undine is a is a guide in an some kind of urban institute. It's part of the City Museum of Berlin. Okay. And it's the part that displays all of the old models of the city. 
And so every time somebody has put together, the city has commissioned mm -hmm. a big model of the city as it goes through history, they have them displayed there. So they have historical models, yeah. but also models of the future mm -hmm. of Berlin and all of the different visions of what Berlin could look like. And she works as a docent there and takes tours through there. Yeah, that's right. She talks about all the many ways that the city has changed and, and will change. And yet she's a nymph. She's a, an internal creature that's not affected by all those changes. So we have the city that is in constant change, a model that's like never stable or, or stays the same. And then we have this very stable, we can say, creature whose love is perfect. And she's in that always changing, moving environment. So how does Petzold use the urban environment in this film? And, and what part of the story does it have? It's very interesting because like you say, she's an eternal creature in a city that's constantly dying. And that's representative of and this. And being night. rebuilt. And being right. rebuilt, right? Mm -hmm. And it's it's very much like her relationship to humans, mm -hmm. where she forms a relationship with them and something happens, a war or something, and then the, the, the city is destroyed and has to be rebuilt, just like she has to rebuild a relationship with humans over and over again. It's a, a really interesting thing. One of the things that she talks about, fascinatingly, at some point they say, oh, I need you to cover for me. I'm doing a tour about the Humboldt Forum. Now, the Humboldt Forum, she grumbles about it, says, oh, no, I don't want to talk about the stupid Humboldt Forum. It is a very, very controversial project. When East Germany took over the center part of town, when they were splitting it all up between the allies, they kept the center part of East Berlin. And the heart of Berlin, the building at the very center, that all of the spokes of the wheel, like every good European city, everything goes back to the center spot, which was a palace by the Hohenzollern dynasty. And they decided to destroy it and make a place to march. They could have a big parade ground right there in the middle of town. So they tore it all down in 1950 and carted it away, destroyed as much of it as they could so it could never be found again and forbid people from talking about it. And they were to print about it. They were going to forget this. And then they had lots of big marches on this place. After the wall comes down. So we're talking about military power yeah. walking over... Yeah. something that um, it was historical and cherished, right. probably. Well, it was, but it was also a symbol of Prussian militarism. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't a Nazi okay. center, yeah. although the Nazis did use it for concerts okay. and, and, and things like that. But it had been the this, this symbol of Prussian power and militarism. And so they tore it down because it ideologically did not fit into the peaceful ideals of what they wanted East Germany to be. And so there, it was a parking lot for years. They eventually built an East German parliament building on there too, and a very beloved entertainment center that had bowling alleys and restaurants. It was called the Palace of the Republic to replace the old palace of the royalty. So this palace of the people stood and was there, and that's where they voted to reunify with Germany, with West Germany and all these things. It's a historical building. However, Right as the wall comes down, people are saying, well, we want the original old palace back. And there's a fight back and forth. And the big turning point is in the late 1990s when they find asbestos in that building and unfortunately tear it down immediately. And it is lost. And then they vote to rebuild the old palace. And so if you can imagine this in Germany, they rebuild three facades of the palace and an inner courtyard. It's a beautiful Baroque building now, but it isn't Baroque. It's modern. And it's been made to look so people say it's a fake, it's kitsch. Others have said, you know, it's, it's really, really miraculous to see how well modern sculptors dealt with this challenge of taking old fragments and building it right back into the facade of this thing. And Undina has, has the task of talking about this. And she says very pointedly, 
no, this is not the way that architecture is supposed to go. When something is dead, it is dead. It is not supposed to return. And if it is, from now we build differently. We build so that form follows function. And what kind of function would a palace have now? And yet they've rebuilt it and it is returned. And you can see as a being that does not die, this offends everything that she believes in. It's a really interesting place for her to be able to comment as an eternal being on something that's happening there. It reminds us, of course, of Vim Vendo's 1987 film, Wings of Desire, Mm -hmm. when angels are going through a divided Berlin and talking about the different things they see. Eternal beings talking about a city that Mm -hmm. changes all the time and is, is having this effect. Interestingly enough, of course, she does... But we don't want to blow too much here. Well, I think this will come out after the well, screening. So it is. It's really important to think about. She ends up having to kill a, a lover who is not true, right? Mm-hmm. And and having to, to live for what she does. And yet, it's very interesting how she withdraws from Frank Rogowski's character, from Christoph, mm-hmm. because she loves him so much, and he loves her, and he never does give up that love. Mm-hmm. But she's worried that he will not survive what could happen. And there's, there's so much fraught that her love for him, she, she withdraws and he has to go through that withdrawal, fall in love with someone else, have a baby with someone else. Mm-hmm. And yet she's still kind of present in her life. That, that, that uh, it, it's a, a moment of it's problematic in terms of gender, of mm-hmm. course, because it's a woman who can never have what she wants mm-hmm. and has to give up something. So the man can live on the other hand, it's a really beautiful moment of, of love mm-hmm. where this magical love goes on and not knowing that she's this magical creature above and below. I mean, they, they show you that that's basically what's going on. There's no backstory. There's no, none of this. Mm-hmm. So it's a fascinating way to look at love and connection between people and what is transitory and what's eternal. Yeah. Very good. Um, can we talk about the role of the water in this film? Mm-hmm. Of course, she's a, she's a water nymph. And I remember her talking about Berlin and how the river mm-hmm. went through it initially and then was changed with the city growing. Can we talk about this water environment that is essential to her and the symbolism in it? Well, this is another interesting reference back to Wings of Desire because mm-hmm. that is where they start. At one point, one of the angels who's in modern Berlin casts his memory back and they show the river. And the river is sitting there going through some reeds. And he says, this is where first we saw people come. And, and uh, you know, we remember that a deer fell in it. And then there were lots of flies. But we started with this water. And this water was the, the element that we came from. And so somehow the, the Undina and the water are the eternal thing that always will flow through the city. And the city rises and falls on its banks. And all the horrific things and good things that happen on its banks go on there, just like she ends up turning around and seeing her former lover, right? They're walking on the banks of the river and Undina turns around and sees him. And it's the the idea that the the river is the silent witness of everything that goes on. And it's an interesting thing to take in this mythological world, to take a person and turn her into that water and have that connection to that eternal that that is there before. And the water, like we say, has its own life. When it's in that that tank, it it comes out and rushes at them. It's an interesting moment, and uh, but you know she saves Frank Rogowski's life, or she saves Christoph's life, right? Brings him up, but somehow that instead of killing him, she's saved his life, and so she has a different relationship to him, and can't either can't or doesn't have the will to let it possibly play out and have a, an unhappy ending, and has to let him go. 
which I find to be really, really interesting is this eternal, she has to break the rules, mm-hmm. which cannot, you know, cannot be easy because water is an element. It flows downhill. It does what it's told. Mm-hmm. And she has to kind of stand up and make water run uphill. Another very strong female character mm-hmm. in this film. So Rob, why should we see this film? You should see this film, first of all, because it's a cracking good film. It is a lovely, beautiful love story. And the pure love that they have for each other is a, a lovely thing. It is something that you, you know, this is a great date movie. This is a great movie when you say, look, that is the kind of relationship I want to have. Okay, I don't want to fall in love with an eternal water creature who kills untrue people. But you want the kind of love and respect that they have for each other. They learn, they have a hard time, but they overcome their problems and have a really lovely, good relationship with each other and are devoted. I think that that's something. Another fascinating thing is the way we look at a city. She works with panoramas, but notice again and again, she will step out onto her balcony, pointing and making the transfer from these unreal models of cities onto the city itself. And I think she has a little bit of a problem differentiating between the two of those and and differentiating between the ideal and between reality, which is her problem also with men, is that there's an ideal that she has and what really happens with the real flesh and blood flawed men that she ends up going out with. And so she sees this model city and thinks that the real world is a model. Those are two things to look for, I'd say. Those are great. Thank you so much, Rob. And thanks to all our listeners for joining us today on From the Booth. Our podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We're solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here, as they do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. As always, we're grateful to our producer, Devin Glenn, and our sound engineer, Marina Ekstrom Pratt. Woohoo, for both of them, they're awesome. They are. We would also like to acknowledge the musical talents of Johnny Stallings, who wrote and recorded music for the podcast. Until next time, see you in 250 of the Kimball Tower.